you. Good morning. Is it on? I think so. Yeah. We just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I just want to repeat the first verse that we read, verse 17. The Apostle Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, like John the Baptist, for instance, but to preach, not like I'm preaching here in a church, but to proclaim, that's what he meant, to talk, to proclaim the gospel, which means the good news. This is good news that God has given to us. Not with wisdom and eloquence, human wisdom and eloquence, because our passage told us that that didn't work. Human wisdom and eloquence doesn't bring you to God. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ must have nothing of the world in it. Only what God has in it. The cross of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The cross and the crucified Son of God are central to the Christian faith. Without that, there is no Christian faith. Without that, there is no salvation. Without that, there is no home in heaven for us. We must have the cross, but not just any old cross. An empty cross doesn't do anything. A different cross doesn't do anything. It would be meaningless. The cross of Christ is the only thing powerful enough to deal with sin. Because the sinless Son of God was crucified on it. That's what gives it its power. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. If you have the King James Version, it says propitiation. It's a long old word, but it means the same thing. Atonement, sacrifice of atonement. Something that reconciles God to man through faith in his blood. Now, Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem, in Israel, in time and space. I want to start by saying that. This is not a fiction story. This is not just something we read in the Bible. This actually happened in history, even though it was a long time ago now. The Apostle John wrote in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 16 and 17, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. I can't help smiling when I read that. Anybody thinking that they were going to take charge of the Son of God, the one who spoke and the worlds were made. They thought they took charge of him, but he was very much in charge with what was going on on Calvary. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. They thought that this was their plan, but it was God's plan for eternal redemption. The Apostle Peter, years later, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself, that's Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Now, I'll come back in a minute and explain why 
why it says on the tree, in case anybody was wondering. First question, why must Jesus be killed? Why couldn't Jesus just say, okay, I forgive everybody? Why did he have to die? And the simple answer is that sin is serious to God. So serious that it requires a serious solution. Not a sticking plaster. God can't put a sticking plaster over the problem of sin. He's not like that. He's a God of justice. He will not sweep it under the carpet. Politicians these days talk about non-negotiables, don't they? Our Prime Minister talks about non-negotiables when she's talking to Europe about Brexit and then she comes back and changes them all. Donald Trump, President of the USA, he talks about red lines, uh, non-negotiables. He calls them red lines. Sin is God's red line. And he isn't going to change his mind on it. Sin is too serious for that because he's a holy God. In Hebrews 9.22 it says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. We cannot be forgiven unless somebody dies to shed their blood for the sins, to pay the penalty of the sins that you and I have all have all done. Now I want to start by telling you a story. I don't want to plunge into theology. I want to tell you a story, a true one, that happened in Rarotonga when Nora and I were missionaries. Now we had, we got four sons, and the youngest is grown up now, but he was young then. He was only two and a half. And we were living in the, the island of Rarotonga, I was lecturing in the theological college there, and I came home for lunch one day, and I came in on a motorbike. Can you imagine me on a motorbike? I, I, don't, I don't drive one now, but... So I drove into the, the backyard. We lived in an island house, nothing posh at all. And I came inside, and I said to Nora, oh, where's Ben? And she said... Oh, he must be out playing. Go and call him, will you? Lunch is ready. So I went out to the garden, and I, it was a big garden, and I, and I called, called, Ben, lunch is ready. No response, no response. So I went into the lane, and I walked down this long lane, and calling all the way, no response, no response. I asked a few people that I passed, island people, and they said, oh, I think we saw him walking up that way. <coughs> so I walked up this road, maybe a quarter of a mile before I heard voices, children's voices, the, sort, the way they talk when they're playing, you know, happy and laughing. And so I walked up and there was a big high hedge and then I came to a gap in the hedge and I walked into this field <laughs> and there he was with an island friend who lived next door to us. He was the same age. And they were swimming in a pond. But this pond was at the bottom of a sloping field and at the top was a herd of pigs. You can imagine what the rain washes down from a herd of pigs into this swimming pool, as Ben thought it was. 
So I marched up to them and I stood there and they turned around and looked up and, and I said, what are you doing? And Ben said, swimming, daddy. <laughs> they were loving it. It was muddy, it was filthy, it was full of all kinds of unmentionable things, but they didn't know that. They were just enjoying it. So I said, out. And they both got out and stood in front of me. Now, I couldn't tell them apart. (laughs) Even though, naturally, one is an island boy, so he's chocolate-colored brown, usually, and very black hair, and Ben, white-skinned, and blonde hair. And they both stood there, and they were both wearing shorts, and I couldn't see any of their shorts. It was just mud and sludge from the top of their head right to the bottom. The only way I could tell the difference, the only way I could tell who was Ben, was by the color of their eyes. The island boy had dark, almost black eyes. Ben had blue eyes. So I knew which was mine. And and so I said, come on, we're going home to see your mother. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) That, that That was a threat. So what did he do? Put his arms up. He thought I was going to carry him, as I usually did. I loved to carry him, and he loved to be carried. He loved that sort of relation, loving relationship that we enjoyed together as a family. But I made him walk behind me <laughs> in disgrace. He understood this, the seriousness of what he had done. I mean, I, I was not so interested in what he might have swallowed in there, although that did cross my mind, but... Uh, worried about, you know, would anybody snatch him while he was so far from the house? I didn't know. So we went back to the house, and there was Mummy. Uh, <laughs> and he s- stood in front of her, and I said to Nora, uh, get the tin bath out and some uh, kettles of hot water and some soap. And we bathed him and used a scrubbing brush to scrub him from head to toe. Uh, and then we used uh, hair shampoo to wash his hair, And eventually it all came off. We got through to the shorts eventually. And I took those off and they were irredeemable. Um, But he was clean in the end. So then I got a towel, a white towel. And I held out my arms and he came. And I took him in my arms. And I assured him that I loved him, although I'd been angry with his disobedience. But I, I loved him and... And our relationship was restored. And then I, I, I remember there was some talcum powder as well. A big box of talcum powder, you know, white. And I, and I poured this all over him. That was to deal with the smell. Because <laughs> even though I got him clean, you have to get rid of the smell as well. Afterwards, I thought to myself, what a picture of us and God and sin. There we are, splashing around in our sin, whatever it is. And God looks down on it and sees it, the way I looked into that pond. And God can smell sin, just like I could smell that stench that he was was swimming in. Jesus had to die. It was that serious. Why was Jesus crucified and not stoned? After all, he was a Jew. So Jews, they didn't crucify people. Uh, The Romans did, uh, and the Greeks, but 
and people before them as well, Babylonians and Phoenicians. There was a lot of crucifixions, but not by Jews. So why did Jesus have to be crucified? And I think the answer is that God needed to connect the crucifixion the, with the original sin. And I mean the original sin, the one in the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and God had said, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of this tree. But he had already said, Now there's loads of trees here, you can eat from all of them. (laughs) It's just this one in the middle you mustn't eat from. So it wasn't that God was being stingy. God was giving him plenty to eat, but he was saying this is like a symbolic tree. I'm going to test whether you're going to do as I say. So, I wonder if you know that there is no sin, there is no um, provision for a sacrifice for rebellion in the Old Testament. Now what Adam and Eve did was rebellion. It was disobedience, but it was intentional disobedience. If you've ever read, where is it, Leviticus chapter 4, as I'm sure you do every other week, verse 2, verse 13, verse 22, verse 27, they all start by saying, if somebody commits an unintentional sin, this is the sacrifice they must offer. But nowhere in the Old Testament law is there provision for rebellion. The answer for rebellion is death. Death by stoning in those days. God would not put up with rebellion. And God doesn't put up with rebellion today either. Capital punishment for the Jews was always stoning, but the original sin committed by Adam and Eve was to take that forbidden fruit from the tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. So God linked the punishment with the crime, in my view. The crime was eating from a tree in the Garden of Eden. So God would crucify his son Jesus on a tree. And that's why there isn't only one reference to Jesus being crucified on a tree. There are ten. Well, there are five, actually, about the tree itself. Acts 5.30, I'm not going to turn to them. Acts 5.30, it says, Whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Peter said that. Acts 10.39, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Peter said that. Acts 13.29, the Apostle Paul said, They took him down from the tree. Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy. A quote from Deuteronomy chapter 21. And 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 that I read earlier. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now I just mentioned there are two Greek words that can be translated tree. Oh, Chris is smiling now. He likes it when I, when I tell him Greek words. The, the general one that's used is dendron. And we've got that in our English language, haven't we? Can you think of 
rhododendron, the rhoda tree. That's what it means. But there's another word that's used here. And these verses that I've just quoted here, where it's talking about Jesus being crucified on a tree. This is not the word dendron. This is zulon. It's and it's used again four times in Revelation for the tree of life. And it's used once more in Luke chapter 23 where Jesus is being taken to the crucifixion. And those ten times are the only times that this Greek word zulon is used for tree. All the others are dendron. It's just to me, I think that God is shining a spotlight on the tree where his son was crucified. To show us how important it is. It shows how central and symbolic the cross of Christ is to God. This is symbolism. God loves symbolism. He says, Adam and Eve, the first sin. My son Jesus, both with trees. The first was a tree. Jesus was crucified on a tree. Make the connection. What I, that's what I think God is saying. So why do some passages in our, in our New Testament translations say tree and some say cross? Well, the Greeks and the Romans copied crucifixion for execution from the other people that I mentioned earlier. Anybody who does preaching tends to have a book, a dictionary in their study, which is Vine's Dictionary of Old Testament and New Testament Words. I'm sure many of us here have it. I certainly do. The, the Bible teacher who, um, who edited the New Testament Greek words was somebody, a name that you will recognize, I think, F.F. F. Bruce. He was a respected brethren Bible scholar. This is what he says. I want to quote what he says. By the middle of the third century A.D., Pagans were received into the churches apart from regeneration by faith. They didn't have to be regenerated by faith in Jesus. They were just led into the church. And they were permitted to retain their pagan signs and symbols. And one they brought in at that time was that. The T with the crossbar. It's a Greek letter T. They brought that in. And it was adopted by the Catholic Church. It was adopted to be the sign of the cross. But nobody knew what the cross looked like. Because you can go on, uh, you can go on the internet and look. But there were no paintings of the crucifixion of Christ. There were no drawings of the crucifixion of Christ. Everybody was too ashamed. The Christians were too ashamed. Crucifixion was the death of a criminal. Nobody liked that at all. And so, it wasn't until the Renaissance, until the 1500s, that painters began to paint the cross and the crucifixion of Christ in the way that we know it, and we have all seen it. It's, the only, it's in all our books. But before the 1500 years after Christ, you wouldn't find that anywhere. 
Now, the Greek word for cross, another one here, is stauros. And it does not mean that. Stauros is where we get our word steak. It was just a steak. Can you imagine the number of people that the Romans crucified just in Israel and, and around their empire? Thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions. They, they didn't have access to enough trees to be able to, to do that kind of cross. They just used stakes. And they weren't 10 feet in the air either. The cross and the crucifixion allowed the Lord to be suspended between earth and heaven like a lightning conductor. He attracted the wrath of God. Just like a lightning conductor attracts lightning. When the Lord Jesus was nailed to that tree, he was, he was smitten by the wrath of God and punished for the sins of those who would believe. The Apostle John says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So either God's wrath has to go to Jesus on the cross, or it has to go to you and me when we die. Take your pick. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then it says, By his wounds you have been healed. And that isn't what the Greek says. Some versions say, by his stripes you have been healed. That isn't what the Greek says. Although he did have wounds and he did have stripes because he was lashed by the Romans. The Greek says, by the bruise you were cured or healed. By the bruise. Now, the Hebrew text of Genesis 3.15 says, this is the first prophecy of the gospel, remember, in the book of Genesis, says, Eve's seed, and it's singular, meaning the Messiah, will bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. That's the bruise the Greek is talking about. Not the lashing that he had, not the scratches of his face that he had through wearing that, that crown. All those things you see in The Passion of Christ, if you've seen the movie The Passion of Christ. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's disfiguring. He had no skin left on his back after they had lashed him. But that wasn't what it's talking about. It's talking about the bruise. Satan bruised Christ by all of this happening to him. God allowed it. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he says to Jews, this is a stumbling block because crucifixion is a criminal's death. And a cross is not viewed as a badge of honor, but of dishonor. To Gentiles, this is foolishness because the world doesn't respect weakness. Jesus on the cross was weakness. The world doesn't respect that. The world respects power. 
nuclear bombs and big armies. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the cross and the crucified Savior is central in New Testament teaching. And I declare to you now, it's central in my heart and life as well. Now, I'm not professing to be perfect. I'm not. You can ask Nora if you want any, any news on that. I'm not perfect, but Jesus is central to my life. And he's central in my heart. And he has been ever since she introduced him to me. Many years ago when we first met. What about you? Now this is where the preacher usually says, I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot. Well, I'm trying to put people on the spot. What about you? Is Jesus central in your life? Is Jesus central in your heart? Because that's why he died. So that Jesus could be central. And I want to tell you a secret. An open secret. He will not take second place in anybody's life. If you think you can negotiate a special deal with Jesus. Where you can, he can be second place in your life. And you can call him when you want him. And then the rest of the time you live your life and forget about him. I tell you, there is no deal. Even President Trump wouldn't accept a deal like that. And he's supposed to be the great deal maker, isn't he? The Lord said in Matthew 10.38, anyone who does not take his cross, that means anyone who isn't ready to die, be prepared to die, and follow me is not worthy of me. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him. So when Jesus was crucified on that cross, we, if we believe, if Jesus is central in our life, we were crucified with him. So he goes on to say, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, you are dead. Your old self is dead because it was crucified on the cross with Christ. Now you've got to live like it. In Matthew 16, 24, the Lord Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, self-denial, and take up his cross and follow me. So the first verse said, you must take up your cross. This one, Matthew 16, says, deny yourself and take up your cross. In other words, put God first. I'll do God's will, but not mine. And then well, a third quotation from Luke 9.23. The Lord Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day. Daily. Continuous. Not just a good idea for Lent. That doesn't wash with God. It has to be daily. It has to be self-denial. It has to be being prepared to die for him. So are we serious about our faith or just playing at Christianity? Let me give you a test. You take this following test. Nobody else will know except you and God. 
I'm going to ask a series of questions. How often do you think about the Lord? You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell anybody. And God already knows anyway. How often do you pray to the Lord? Not how often do you listen to somebody else pray. How often do you thank the Lord for dying in your place on the cross at Calvary? How often do you read the words of the Lord in the Bible? Not how often do you listen to somebody else reading them or listen to Billy Graham preaching them. Although, yeah, I listen to him. But that's not enough. How often do you look for his glorious appearing and yearn for heaven? Or is your life filled with other things? In, first, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, He made peace through the blood of his cross. That's what the cross was, to make peace. Not to make peace between America and Korea, to make peace between man and God. Between individual men and women and God. There needs to be peace. And in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. Last quote. He tells us what his purpose was. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Out of the two. The two being Jew and Gentile making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross. There it is. It comes up everywhere. It's central. It's symbolic. It's serious business. Have you dealt with it? Have you made your peace with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you made it possible for us to make peace with you. We thank you that you were the one that put Jesus on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. You put him there because you wanted peace to be made between you and, and your creation, between you and the men and women that you had created. And we thank you, Lord, that you've told us, you've revealed this to us by revelation in your holy word. None of us can claim we didn't know. And when we come face to face with you, when we die, for every one of us will come face to face with you when we die, we will not be able to say, I didn't know. So Lord, we pray that you would bring each one of us now, this moment, face to face with you in our hearts. May we be ready to ask your forgiveness for our sins and to accept your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.